0: In Ephesians 1, verse 20, it says that Christ was raised from the dead and was seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places far above, listen to this, all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This is not some future reign of Christ in the age to come. He's reigning in this age. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, I want you to take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, this evening is going to be a little bit different in terms of a sermon. I am an expository preacher. I preach expository sermons. There are other ways that you can preach. Uh, Some people are topical preachers. They'll pick a certain topic in Scripture And they'll use that as a launching point, as sort of a category to address uh, from various passages of Scripture. And there are times and places in the life of a church where that is appropriate, especially if you're dealing with a particular cultural issue or you want to deal with a particular sin or a different point of theology that you don't otherwise have opportunity to do and you want to go a little bit deeper into that. There's also a style of preaching called textual preaching, And uh, one of the ways you can define textual preaching is that it's very similar to expository preaching. There's a stated text, and in some measure that text is worked through, but it's not a strict exposition of every line and every word in any sort of detailed fashion where you are really bringing out of the context of that particular passage in that particular book um, everything that you could say. And uh, several, I guess it's been several months ago, maybe a couple of years ago, As a church, I preached through the book of Ephesians, and that was a rather detailed study. Those sermons are available online, and you can listen to them, uh, in particular, uh, verses 18 through 22, if you want sort of a deeper study of these verses. But tonight, I don't want to give so much as a a strict exposition of these verses. Um, I want to give more of a textual sermon this evening. Um, that I've put together around the topic of the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed was a creed that the church fathers wrote as they came together in the year A.D. 325. It was then edited uh, in 381 at the Council of Constantinople. And the Nicene Creed is considered to be basically the earliest ecumenical confession of the church the earliest ecumenical confession of the Church. There is a line in that confession, uh, in that creed, that says, we believe in the Church. We believe in the Church. And we believe that the Church is one. We believe that the Church is holy. We believe that the Church is Catholic. We believe that the Church is apostolic. We believe in one holy, Catholic, apostolic Church. And I want to talk a little bit about what that means because we are dealing with various topics under the category of ecclesiology and theology as we work toward formalizing our church membership, and I've been teaching a Sunday school class on maybe some things that many of you haven't heard of or you've not heard spoken of in a church setting, things like covenant theology, um, things related to the Reformation, and it's very valuable for us as Reformed people to value the confessions, to to value the creeds, to value the tradition of the church, and to accept and embrace parts of that tradition, parts of the confessions, perhaps whole confessions and creeds, um, that have been helpful for Christians throughout time because it reminds us that we do have an identity. When we started this church, We were not affiliated with any denomination. We weren't affiliated with any church planting network. We were just a group of people that came together. And one of my concerns at the very, very, very beginning with a church plant is that you you lack an identity when you plant a church. If you're not part of a denomination, if you're not part of a great network that everyone is familiar with, you sort of lack an identity. And that's one of the reasons I wanted the word "reform" to remain in the title of the church. I wanted people to know, and Jeff wanted people to know, that we are a reformed church. We believe in reformed theology. We hold to that unashamedly. We hold to that convictionally. Uh, We will not apologize for that. We have an identity, and our identity is not something we made up. It fits in a long tradition, a long line of godly men and women in the Reformed tradition who throughout time have believed certain things that have passed the test of time. That is the value of creeds. That is the value of confessions. So in speaking about this one little line from the Nicene Creed, we believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. I think there are things within this statement that will help us as we formalize church membership and talk about all of these various things. One way to think about the church is to think about the church as an army. The Bible uses that metaphor periodically that we are in warfare. We are in warfare with Satan. God is obviously at warfare with Satan. As Christians, we are soldiers in His army. And we are numbered among an incalculable host of soldiers, other Christians You are connected by the blood of Christ, being in union with Christ, not only with the brothers and sisters that are in this room, and not only with brothers and sisters in Christ that are alive today, but you are one and united with brothers and sisters throughout church history. One imaginative writer, creatively, and this was recently, speculates what a top-ranking demon might say about Christ's one holy Catholic apostolic church, and this this is what he imagines the demon of saying. We see this church, this one holy Catholic apostolic church, spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity. And this demon says we view this church as terrible as an army with banners. As terrible as an army with banners. We know that James says that the demons believe God is one and they shudder. James 2.19. We saw from the passage this morning when Jesus cast... 6,000 demons out of one man, that those demons were trembling, they were fearful, they were begging Jesus for His mercy, they were prostrating themselves before the power of Jesus, the one they called the Son of the Most High God. So we are in a war, it is not an equal war because Jesus came, First John 3, 8, to destroy the works of the devil. And when He died upon the cross and when He was raised from the grave, that was the Father's stamp of approval that he indeed did secure redemption for his people. The war, therefore, is effectively over in the sense that the final outcome is not yet to be determined. Christ has already won. The devil still is around. He, he walks around like a, a lion, prowling around, seeking those to devour. There are demons. There are satanic influences in the world. But these demons know that they are defeated, the church appears to these demons as a terrible army with banners that phrase one holy catholic apostolic church was a phrase that the fathers pinned because they believed that to confess that the church was one to confess that the church was holy to confess that the church was catholic to confess that the church was apostolic is to say that they and we believe in the church and that we are part of this church. We are part of what Christ said He would build in Matthew 16 and verse 8. He said, I will build the church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. This statement tells us not only what the church was, but what the church is. Not only how the church started, but how she will continue through all time, even down through eternally. This statement, one holy, Catholic, apostolic church, not only defines the church, but it also declares what the church believes. This statement not only tells us what the church calls herself uh, under the direction of the headship of her bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, but what she actually is, even in all of her yet perfected imperfections. So I believe that Christians, true Christians, that is mature Christians, are not cynics. True Christians love the church. It is very easy to point out the flaws of the church in the world today. You could come up with a long list of theological flaws, spiritual flaws, all sorts of flaws. What is hard to do is to look beyond those flaws, not to deny them or to ignore them, but to look past them and to see Christ and to see that the church is His bride, that there is a true church that exists in the world. There is one church, and that church is holy. That church is Catholic. That church is apostolic. And that is precisely what this statement is saying. To be a true Christian, to be a mature Christian, is not to be cynical about the church. It's to be lovable toward the church. John Calvin said, "...he who would have God for his father must have the church for his mother." That was not an original statement by Calvin. That was made by one of the early church fathers. But Calvin goes on to, at length to describe what he means by that, and he says, and I quote, "...for there is no other way to enter into life unless this mother, the church, conceive us in her womb, give us birth, nourish us at our breast, and lastly, unless she keep us under her care and guidance, until, putting off mortal flesh, we become like the angels." Our weakness does not allow us to be dismissed from her school until we have been pupils all our lives, because away from her bosom, that is the church's bosom, one cannot hope for any forgiveness of sins or of any salvation. In fact, the scriptures describe the consummation of all things in that sort of language as the church having female qualities, as a mother or in Revelation 19, as the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. That's in the book of Revelation, but throughout all of Scripture, the church is described as the bride of Christ, and He is the bridegroom. What do you see in a wedding? You see in a wedding that uh, a bride is given to her husband. And we see that that bride willingly gives herself to her husband. It is a beautiful thing. I have, throughout the years, officiated a host of different weddings. And it is always a special time. But one thing that I have noticed in every wedding that I have overseen is that it doesn't matter the context in which it takes place. It doesn't matter who the bride is, who the groom is. It doesn't matter how many bridesmaids there, there are, how many groomsmen there are, uh, the decorations, who the pastor is. When that door opens and the bride begins her march, that groom is in his own world. He does not care about anyone else. He is not thinking about anything else. He only has eyes for his bride. And she too only has eyes for him. When you think back to the book of Genesis, you think back to God creating Adam, and then of course he formed Eve from the rib of Adam, and the Bible says that God brought Eve to Adam. God walked his daughter down the aisle of the Garden of Eden to give her over to Adam. And when you look at Ephesians chapter 5, you see that Paul speaks about the husband being the head of the wife and the wife submitting to her husband, and Paul says, yes, this should be how it is in a real marriage between two ma- or one male and one female, but this mystery is great, Paul says, and I'm speaking in reference to Christ and His church. Everything about marriage is meant to point to Christ and His church. So tonight, so far, we've talked about battlefields and banners. We've talked about warfare and weddings. But this which might appear to be some sort of fairy tale, is really not a fairy tale. In this statement, we believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. We are reminded that we are part of the greatest institution and organization that has ever existed in the history of the world. We are so highly valued by God through Christ that we are referred to as the Bride of Christ. Encapsulated in this great ancient confession, that we believe that the church is one holy, Catholic, and apostolic, we see in a summarized fashion how God views the church and how we are to view the church, how we are to view one another, our involvement with the church, our commitment to the church, our identity with the church, our mission with the church, and all the rest. So I want to take as my text Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18-22. through 22. And as we look at these verses, I think we see the very same four descriptions of the church that we find in the Nicene Creed. The church is one, the church is holy, the church is Catholic, and the church is apostolic. Notice with me, beginning in verse 18, Paul says, "...for through Him, that is through Christ, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God." Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Four descriptions of the church are found, the same four descriptions we see in the Nicaean Creed. Let's begin in verses 18 and 19 where Paul tells us that Christ's church is one. Christ's church is one. We believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. That oneness is seen in verse 18, for through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. Now in the context, Paul is of course explaining how the prophecy of the Old Testament has been fulfilled. He is borrowing language from Uh, One passage in particular, Isaiah 57 and verse 19, I'll read beginning in verse 18, I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. Paul is speaking about how two people groups are brought one in Christ, those who are far off and those who are near. If you skip back to verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far off, that is Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that is to the Jews. Through Christ, verse 18 is saying that both groups, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. And Paul will elaborate on that in Ephesians chapter 4, And verse 4, where he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so, in verse 19, Paul concludes that God's kingdom is international in a way that it never was before. Notice verse 19. So then, Paul concludes, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the one household of God. Christ is the head of this one household of God. In Romans chapter 5, we have history summarized for us under two people. Two people with the same name of Adam, the first Adam and the last Adam. These men served as federal representatives of the first one, the whole human race, that is the first Adam in the garden, and the second, the God-man, that is the Lord Jesus Christ who served as our federal representative, the federal representative of the church that Jesus purchased with his own blood. Paul says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death spread through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. There was another Adam that was to come, verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free grace by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many through that one man, Jesus Christ who is now the head of a new race, a new creation. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the head of the church. He is over this one household. Of course, the implications of this is that the full measure of the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost. We are members of the new covenant. We are members of the new covenant. The church was birthed in the new covenant, But this does not mean that God had a different plan of salvation in the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, the church existed, but the church existed in embryonic form. In the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit was there. He's the third member of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit was operative in regeneration. The Holy Spirit was operative in sanctification. In fact, Jesus affirmed that because technically when He spoke to Nicodemus and said, you must be born again, you must be born from above, born of the Spirit, that was still technically the Old Covenant. He had yet to ratify the new covenant. But we know that the full measure of the Holy Spirit, in the sense of gospelizing the nations, for the gospel to be spread throughout the world, was something unique to the new covenant. This is quite undeniable when you read in the book of Acts and chapter 1, When they had come together, verse 6, they asked Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And of course, that is exactly what took place. The Gospel spread so that now two groups of people who hated one another, Jews and Gentiles, were now one. Paul put it this way in Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You are sons of Abraham, Paul says in the book of Galatians, if you have faith, regardless of whether or not you have Jewish blood coursing through your veins. And Peter would, would be so bold as to tell the church Now united in Christ, now one in Christ that um, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is language of the Old Testament. A people for His own possession, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light, into the light of His kingdom, into the light of the new covenant, into the light of a new epoch and a new age in which Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He rose from the darkness of that tomb and he sits in the light of heaven where he is ruling and reigning. Practically speaking, one of the implications for this in our own day is to recognize that any sort of theology or ideology that brings division within the church is something that is satanic, that is trying to undo the work of Christ. And I'll give you an example of one of those things, and that is critical race theory. Critical race theory is cloaked in language that says it wants to bring people together, but all it does is bring people apart. It divides people. It denies the gospel. It has a focus on a a certain race or certain races and the differences between people instead of upon Christ. It is a secular theory that has infiltrated the church and has been adopted by scores of pastors, teachers, theologians, seminary presidents, and even people that sit in the pew. Critical race theory, however, has no place in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Paul says, just in the verse above, Galatians 3.29, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the church is one. Now, when you look at the church today, you say, church certainly doesn't look like it's one. It looks rather divided. There are schisms, there are factions, there are flaws, and that is true. This oneness, however, in the mind of God is forever sealed. It is unalterable, unless, of course, we believe that the Father won't answer the Son's Request. Do you remember the son's request, the high priestly prayer? Jesus said, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prayed that the church would be one. And someday the church will outwardly and expansively be one. But even where we see schisms and factions and divisions, it doesn't change the fact that there is one true church that God has identified. In fact, if you go with me to Ephesians 4, we turned to it just a moment ago. Notice this sort of language. This is a statement of fact that the church is one. Paul says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There is one body. Paul does not say we are to create unity. Christ created that unity through the gospel. That is what brings people from different backgrounds together. That's what makes them one in Christ. That's what makes us love one another with the same sort of love that Christ loved us. We're united by the blood of Christ. We don't create that unity, but we do maintain that unity. Skip back to verse 3. He says, "...be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace." Well, if you're maintaining it, that means you didn't create it. And there's nothing you can do to create it. The oneness of the church is unalterable. It's fixed. It can't be changed. This oneness is not only unalterable, it is also not related to any sort of organizational structures. There are many people throughout the world today who are ecumenical and they try to bring groups together. There have been figures throughout church history who have tried to do that. Billy Graham would be one of them. Mother Teresa would be another one of them. Martin Lloyd-Jones said in his own day, one of my three favorite preachers of all time, these words, he said, and I quote, "...a mere coalition of organizations or denominations has in reality nothing whatsoever to do with this unity of the church." Indeed, Lloyd-Jones says, it may even be a danger to be part of a denomination... The unity that our Lord is concerned about is a unity which is spiritual. It consists of a unity of spirits. And it is a unity, therefore, which is based solidly upon the truth. Solidly upon the truth. And someone may say, particularly those in the Roman Catholic Church, well, if it wasn't for the Reformation, the church would still be one today. Look at all the denominations. Look at all the splintering off. But in reality although the organizational structure of church networks and denominations does not create unity and sometimes doesn't even maintain unity because um, you have people that are of different spirits that are part of those things, it's not the foundation of unity. Christ is the foundation of unity. It's not what holds everything together. There is a secret grace, I think, a common grace within certain structures like that because it allows Christians to band together on things they agree on And to continue to recognize other Christians that are part of other organizations or networks or denominations where they don't fully agree with them on, but because they're not part of the same organization, they're not fighting with each other all of the time. So I would make the argument that denominations and networks don't reveal that the church is divided, but actually can enhance the oneness of the church where you agree to disagree on issues that are of secondary significance. I even believe that within local congregations, churches can be united and they can believe most of the same things and yet differ on some other things. One example of that, in my opinion, would be the issue of baptism. Baptism is something that you're not going to solve today. Uh, because the church has not solved this controversy. There have been many good people on both sides, those who hold to infant baptism, those who hold to believers' baptism. There are those who not only disagree over whether or not you're to sprinkle a baby or whether or not you're only to sprinkle someone who makes a valid profession of faith. There are those who argue over the mode of baptism. I mean, do you immerse? Do you pour? Do you sprinkle? Well, I think Paul actually had something to say about this. If you turn back with me to 1 Corinthians Chapter 1. You may maybe have not thought about this before, but there were divisions in the church at Corinth. And Paul writes to them here in 1 Corinthians, in verse 10, he appeals to them. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. I love how Paul just points out people that are in the church that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He says in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, Why? Verse 15. So that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Seems to me that Paul was focused on one thing, and that was the preaching of the gospel. He wasn't concerned about baptism to the degree that these people were concerned about it. Being baptized by a certain person is sort of a badge of honor. You say, well, baptism is pretty important. It's one of the sacraments of the church. It's a sign and a seal of the covenant. So are you denying the importance of baptism? Well, of course I'm not denying the importance of baptism, but what I am rejecting is an overemphasis on the physical right of baptism over the gospel itself. And Paul would do that too. Turn with me to chapter 15 in Corinthians. Paul says in verse 1, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. He was always focused on the gospel, to which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now notice this. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. What was that? Baptism? No that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Paul says, of first importance is the Gospel, not the sign of the Gospel, not the timing of it, not the mode of it. You can have convictions on those things and still have unity with other Christians because it's the Gospel that unites us, not baptism. Fact, I would challenge you with this, If baptism is the dividing line for unity, which it is in most Baptist churches, of which my heritage is, so I'm allowed to say these sorts of things, if baptism is the dividing line for unity regarding who a Christian is or who a viable member of a church is, then I say that God needs to resurrect the Reformers and make them apologize because the Reformers did not split from the Roman Catholic Church over the issue of baptism. They split with the Roman Catholic Church over the issue of the gospel. Now, they believed in baptismal regeneration, the Roman Catholic Church did, so the Reformers obviously fixed that and said, no, you're not saved by being baptized. But most of the Reformers recognized baptisms as legitimate in the Roman Catholic Church. The Reformers didn't re-baptize people. Rebaptize people, because they said that those people, although they were baptized by maybe an unbelieving priest uh, in an unbelieving heretical church, that at least that baptism was done in the name of the Trinity, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if such oneness is not alterable, If such oneness is not organizational, it's not based on your connections to things in this world, then what is this oneness based on? One word, theological. Theological. It's based upon the gospel. Paul was so clear about this. He said to the Galatians, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching, preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For Paul, the unity was always found in the gospel the purity of the gospel message being preached. And that is why when we read in Jude chapter 3 that we are to contend earnestly for the faith because certain people have crept in designated for condemnation. We are to contend for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. We believe in one church. We don't believe that the church was started at the Reformation. The Reformers didn't believe that. Martin Luther wasn't creating a new church. He wasn't creating a new denomination. What he was saying is that the one true church needed to come to the surface. How is that church identified? By their declaration, their definition, their clarity on the gospel, on the truth. That's what marks a church. So Paul, when he met with the elders of Ephesus... He said, make sure that you guard the church that you have called to shepherd because fierce wolves will come in. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. Church leaders, preachers, elders are to defend the church and the ground that they stand on is the gospel. So the church maintains its oneness by maintaining doctrinal purity. Doctrinal purity. Now, we'll move a little faster as we go through these other four descriptive words because you're going to see how everything is related back to that first descriptive word, one. Paul says Christ's church is one in verses 18 and 19. Number two... Skip down to verse 21, we see that Christ's church is also holy. We believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. Verse 21 of Ephesians 2, "...in Him the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord." To be holy means to be set apart, simply means to be consecrated. Paul refers to the church here as a holy temple... That is to remind us of the fact that God's people are not tied to a certain city in the Middle East. We're not tied to um, a temple. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I referenced earlier earlier, 1 Peter chapter 2, where we're called a chosen race and a royal priesthood. But in that passage before that, Peter says that we are living stones connected to the living stone of Christ rejected by men. We're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're a holy nation, we're a holy priesthood. That's language of the Old Testament to more than suggest That God's salvation has always been by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Whether it was someone in the Old Testament who had Jewish blood running through their veins and they were looking forward to the promised Messiah or it's a Gentile today looking backward to the Jewish Messiah. It's the same people. It's the same chosen race. You see why critical race theory is so destructive? It denies the gospel. There aren't various races of people. There is one human race and there is one chosen holy race of people that are found in Christ and through the blood of Christ. And so the church is one and the church is a holy temple. Again, this is not a statement of wish. This isn't wishful thinking. I want the church to be holy. No, verse 21 says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We are a holy temple. We've been pronounced holy by God. 2 Timothy 2.9 says that we have a holy calling. 2 Timothy 2.2 says we are set apart as holy. Ephesians 1.4 says we're chosen to be holy. Colossians 3.12 says that we are holy and beloved by God. This doesn't mean that we are perfect. We are, and there's a little Latin expression, at the same time righteous and a sinner. We have been declared righteous through... Justification through our faith. In one sense, we have something in common the church does with the prison system. We are all guilty of sin. The church is full of bad people. The church is full of sinners. The difference is that unlike the prison system, although we are guilty, we are not punished as guilty and we are declared righteous. Righteous. We had someone who paid for our crimes of sin. And unlike the prison system, we've been set free. Through Christ, through His blood, by His grace, the church is holy. Now here we need to make a distinction between the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church is the church as man sees it. The invisible church is the church as God sees it. Uh, A helpful passage here is 2 Timothy 2, verse 19, which says, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. I like that verse. The Lord knows those who are His. So you might not know those who are His. Sometimes you do. Jesus says you'll know them by their fruit. Sometimes you won't. Life is complex. People commit Grave sins. David was someone who committed deep sin, but was repentant of that. We don't pass judgment. We understand that the Lord knows those who are His. But 2 Timothy 2.19 also says, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That is a call to holiness. If you have been set apart by the Holy Spirit, if you've been consecrated, if you've been washed with the blood of Christ, and you're holy in the sense of being positionally holy, accepted by God, then you need to depart from iniquity. The church is to be a place of grace and mercy, but it is also to be a place of accountability. Both of those things are true. And the Bible speaks about this. We've spoken about the Corinthians. Paul wrote to the Corinthians back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There were divisions in that church, but there was also sexual immorality in that church. We should not be surprised today. I just read about another megachurch pastor who publicly confessed to several sexual sins, a younger pastor. Maybe we're not surprised anymore because it seems like so many are being exposed, but we we never really should be surprised. This has always been part of the church. It's always been part of the church. It was part of the early church when apostles were still living. When Paul would say things like this to the Corinthians, and this is a paraphrase, um, when I come to visit you, you better have things in order. He's an authoritative apostle. Well, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he talks about fleeing immorality. He says in verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then notice verse 11. Such were some of you. Very important. Paul would not mention This list of sins, if there were not people present in the congregation who were committing these sins. When he says, such were some of you, he's not saying, well, you used to commit those things and you no longer do. He's saying, you used to commit those things and you still are, but that is not your identity. You're not identified as a sinner anymore, you've been set apart. You've been washed by the blood of Christ. Notice verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Rather than doubting their salvation, Paul says, you have been saved by Christ. You've been declared righteous. And on the basis of that reality of holiness that is true about you you ought to not want to commit those sins that you used to commit, that you now are falling into and committing. You need to repent of those sins because the true church is holy. The true church is holy in her beliefs, in her doctrine, in her behavior, and in her duty. We believe in one holy Catholic church. That's the third point. Christ's church is not only one. Christ's church is not only holy. Christ's church is Catholic. Ephesians 2, again, our text, and verse 22. We'll get back to verse 20 in a minute. Don't worry, I won't forget it. Verse 22, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Key phrase there is that you are being built together. I love the language of that. That is church history language. The church is being built. There are stones that are being added. And it's not like one generation, God builds the church, it's torn down, and then He builds it again, it's torn down, and He builds it again. God has been building this thing. He has been building it. No one's torn it down. They vandalized it. But it's not been torn down. It's constantly being built. We are being built together to say that the church is Catholic, or it is universal. We are part of God's people throughout history, the one true universal Catholic church. Lone Ranger Christianity is what I like to call Christianity that doesn't attach itself to a particular church. And that is a common thing in our modern era. But Lone Ranger Christianity is really an anomaly historically. A Christian, the Bible says, First Corinthians twelve five, you don't have to turn there, a Christian is one baptized into one body. That's spirit baptism. So when the Spirit of God regenerates you and births you anew, you are washed and regenerated and baptized into the body of Christ. So whether you recognize it or not, you're part of the Catholic Church. You're part of the universal church. Collectively we're living stones, as Peter says, with other Christians in First Peter chapter two, built up as a spiritual house. Luther and the other reformers were not afraid of the term Catholic. What they didn't like was the term Roman. And they would oftentimes, particularly Luther and Calvin, speak about Romish qualities, Romish doctrine, Romish behavior, Romish vestments. Because anything that smelled like Rome, smelled of bad theology, bad behavior, just badness all the way around. But they didn't believe they were creating a new denomination or a new church. They believed that what they taught was what the one holy Catholic church has taught throughout all of history. This, uh, this word can become a stumbling block, Catholic, particularly with Baptists. Um, many of you were alive when JFK ran for president. I obviously wasn't, but very familiar with history and have read a lot on John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy, his presidential campaign in 1960, he was only the second American to run for president that was Catholic, ever. And there was great fear, even among Democrats, who always voted Democrat, they did not want to vote for John F. Kennedy. And in September of 1960, I believe it was... John Kennedy gave a speech in the city of Houston, which is a southern city, and uh, he addressed Southern Baptist clergy. This was sort of ground zero for anti-Catholic sentiment. And John F. Kennedy, who was a very intelligent man, made a statement that you probably heard. He said, I am not the Catholic candidate for president. I am the Democratic Party's candidate for president that happens to be Catholic. (laughs) Sort of a way to to twist the words around, to communicate the fact that he was not going to work alongside of the Pope to make the United States of America Roman Catholic. There were all sorts of rumors going on at this time. One of the rumors said that the Pope was going to move to the United States. Another rumor said that the Pope was going to annul all Protestant marriages. Another rumor said that there was a tunnel in Holland that was somehow going to be connected to the Vatican. I mean, there were crazy rumors that were going on. You can understand sort of the fear because in the late 1920s, um, a man by the name of Al Smith ran for president, and he was the first Catholic that ran for president, and he lost because he was Catholic. Well, I think that same type of fear is often found among Christians particularly Baptists, when they hear the word Catholic in the Nicene Creed. But when we say we believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church, we're not saying anything about the Roman Catholic Church. The word Catholic just means universal. Katholikos is the Greek word. It means universal or general. It has a strong history in the church. For instance, Ignatius of Antioch in a letter said that where Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic or universal church. He meant that Christ is everywhere. Christ is omnipresent. If there is a Christian, then Christ is present in that Christian. If there is a collection of Christians, then there is the church. There is the Catholic church. Matters not where a person gathers locally, Christ is everywhere in the world. From the third century on, the word Catholic basically meant something like orthodox today to distinguish from other heretical groups. Clement of Alexandria said, the one church is violently split up by the heretics into many sects. In essence, in idea, origin, preeminence, we say that the ancient Catholic church is the only church. So there was a splitting of the church in the 11th century, the East and the West. The Eastern church chose the term Orthodox. The Western church chose the term Catholic. But the term Catholic basically meant that which is orthodox, that which is biblical. The word Catholic simply became a word to identify what was right, what was wrong, what was, we could say, evangelical, and to distinguish it from that which was heretical. Many of you love the Heidelberg Catechism. And uh, in the Heidelberg Catechism, question 54, it asks this question. What do you believe concerning the holy... Catholic Church? Here's the answer. And this is, this is written by reformers. Those who reform from the Roman Catholic Church. That out of the whole human race, from the beginning to the end of the world, the Son of God, by His Spirit and Word, gathers, defends, and preserves for Himself unto everlasting life a chosen communion and the unity of the true faith, and that I am and forever shall remain a living member of the same. Pretty simple. All it means to say that you're part of the Catholic Church is to say that you are brothers and sisters with the church fathers. You're brothers and sisters with Christians throughout church history, with the apostles going all the way back to the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the way, is your elder brother, because he is the one that brings you to the Father and reconciles you to the Father. One famous covenant theologian during the Reformation, a man by the name of Yersinus, I've quoted him before to you, He said that the church is called Catholic for three reasons. Number one, in respect to its place. In respect to its place. The church is spread over the whole world. It's not tied or restricted to any particular place, kingdom, or certain succession. The Catholicity of the church in this respect commenced at the time of the apostles because um, from that day into this day, it is circumscribed in narrow limits being not connected to the Jewish nation. the church is Catholic in the sense of its place. Your sinus also says secondly in respect to men, because the church gathered from all classes of all men of every nation. The church is Catholic in respect to its place, in respect to its men, the people that are part of it, and in respect to time. Your sinus says, because the church will endure throughout every period of the world. Jesus said, I will be with you always even to the end of the world because there is only one true church of all time which is of such a peculiar constitution as to embrace the whole world and not to be tied down to any one particular place. Even in our own day, there have been groups of people that have tried to bring together Protestants and Catholics. We don't endorse that sort of Catholicity Because those people are putting doctrines aside. They're saying doctrines don't matter. Or they're coming up with documents that are written in such flexible, subjective language that you could be Protestant or you could be Catholic and interpret it any way you want. That's not what we affirm. The idea of the Catholicity of the church means that we have conviction. The church has a history, the church has tradition, and where that history and tradition does not conflict with the scriptures or with the gospel, we would do well to retain that because that is a great testimony to the world. We don't want to try to reinvent the wheel. Why try to do something the church has never done? If it's done something for a certain period of time and God has blessed that and it doesn't violate scripture and it doesn't violate the gospel, then there actually is a precedence for doing that. And here at our church, Christ Reformed, we want to be Catholic in the sense that we're identified with the universal church of Christ from all time. We affirm what the Nicene Creed says. We believe that the church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. That's the fourth point. Christ's church is one. Christ's church is holy. Christ's church is Catholic. Christ's church is apostolic. Skip back with me to verse 20. Paul says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This is the one household of God, right? Verse 19, Christ Jesus himself serves as that cornerstone. The church of the Old Testament, which was largely Jewish, is not different than the church of the New Testament, except for the fact that now you have the harvest of Gentile sinners being saved. The church was birthed on the day of Pentecost, but it existed in embryonic form in the Old Testament, so that Paul can say the church is being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It it is being built up in a way that it never has before, with this international flavor to it. In fact, Jesus was, was clear about this in a number of places. Luke 24 would be, I think, the most obvious place to turn. Luke chapter 24, and Jesus says um, on the road to Emmaus, to these disciples who don't recognize him, he says, "...was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself." I would have loved to have been there that day to see what passages Jesus went through to point to the fact that the Old Testament was always and always constantly speaking about Him. Um, But then we skip down to verse 44 of this, this very same passage when Jesus appears to the disciples. And He says to them, verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That is a summarized way of saying the law of Moses, that's the Pentateuch. The prophets, the major and minor prophets, the Psalms, that would also include the Proverbs. All of the Old Testament was about me. You can find me in all of the Old Testament. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. This was an expository sermon. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be, notice this, proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. So the church existed in the Old Testament In seed form and embryonic form, but the foundation was laid. It couldn't really, the foundation couldn't really be laid until Christ came because he's the cornerstone. And when he comes, the apostles lay that foundation. They preach the gospel and the gospel goes to the end of the world. And you have on the day of Pentecost, people speaking in tongues. You have people filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does Peter do? Peter stands up and he says, this day, the Old Testament scriptures are being fulfilled. And he quotes Joel chapter two. Verses 28 and following, which speak about the fact that in the last days, the Spirit of God would be poured out on all flesh and sons and daughters would prophesy and young men would see visions and old men would see dreams. So this is in fulfillment of the Old Covenant, the promise of the church being built on the apostles. And notice Ephesians 2 says, also the prophets. Also, the prophets. Now, I will admit that there are two views of this. Some people think that Paul is referencing New Testament prophets, not Old Testament prophets, because you have passages like Ephesians three eleven and Ephesians four eleven, uh, twelve, which which speaks about the office of prophet. There was an office, a New Testament office, called prophet. However. I don't believe that's the correct interpretation. I think he's speaking about Old Testament prophets. But I'll concede the point that maybe he is speaking about New Testament prophets, but the same thing is being said. And that is that the message of the apostles does not conflict with the message of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, One one example of that is, is in the book of Acts in In Acts chapter 2, Peter says that this is exactly what the prophets said would happen. Also in Acts chapter 10, in verse 43, Peter says, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So the apostles confirmed what the prophets were teaching. Church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ being the cornerstone. The apostles were the authoritative representatives commissioned by Christ to tell the church what she was to look like in this new age, in this new covenant. And in Luke chapter 24 that we were in just a moment ago, Luke skips ahead at the end of his gospel all the way to the ascension in verse 50. He led them out as far as Bethany, lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them, he was carried up into heaven. They worshipped him, he returned to Jerusalem with great joy, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple blessing God. Christ was ascended to the right hand of God, to rule and to reign over the church. He is the one head of The church, we're in the book of Ephesians as our text tonight. And in Ephesians 1, verse 20, it says that Christ was raised from the dead and was seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places far above, listen to this, all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This is not some future reign of Christ in the age to come. He's reigning in this age. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the head of the church. So when we say we believe that the church is one holy, Catholic, apostolic, we don't affirm what Rome affirmed, and that is the concept of apostolic succession. That the Pope has the authority of Christ. He's the vicar of Christ on earth. No, we believe that Christ is the second Adam. He is the God-man. He's been resurrected. He ascended to the right hand of God, and he is taking dominion over his new creation until all things are subjected under his feet. Not only in the age to come, Paul says, but in this age as we just read from Ephesians chapter 1. Paul would be so clear about this in that great resurrection passage, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says in verse 27 that God has put all things in subjection under his feet. That has already happened. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. So all things have been placed under his feet because he is at the right hand of God. There is no competitor to Christ. Christ exercises rule over the church. We don't believe in apostolic succession. We're apostolic in the sense that we are New Testament and Old Testament Christians, (laughs) we believe in the authority of the Bible. The sufficiency of the Bible, the inerrancy of the Bible, the inspiration of the Bible. We also don't believe in what the Charismatics teach. Their form of apostolic succession is seen in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, prophecies, dreams, healings. Again, the power of the church is not found in anything but the gospel. It's not found in baptism. It's not found in some supernatural wonder or sign. Those are all distractions and they're actually satanic distractions because if Satan can get your mind off of the gospel and focus on all these things, then the gospel is muted. And in most charismatic churches, you won't hear the gospel preached. It's muted because the focus is on the wrong things. So, to be apostolic means we preach the message of the apostles, which was the message of the prophets, which is the message of Christ. The New Testament is the lens by which we view and understand the Old Testament and understand the Kingdom of God and the one true Catholic Church. And salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. That's what it means to be apostolic. We believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. We believe that. We believe that the Word takes precedence, the Gospel is central, holiness is lived out. The tradition of the apostles is carried forth. We're part of a great catholic tradition, not Roman catholic, but the universal church of Christ. Where Christ is, God's people are, and where God's people are, Christ is everywhere. There are no borders. There is no ethnic distinctions within the church. Our identity is Christ. We are to look like Christ, we are to talk like Christ. We are to act like Christ, we are to submit to Christ, and we are to extend the rule of Christ. This is what it means to be one holy Catholic apostolic church. So I will close simply by reading to you the words of the Apostle Matthew, quoting Jesus. Verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's always with us. He's always with us. We are one with Him. He does not leave the church. He is omni. He was with the church in the past. He's with the church in the present. He'll be with the church in the future. Thus we can say, we believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. To Him be the glory. Let us pray. Our Lord God, we thank You for this text of Ephesians chapter 2, which has really helped us understand a little bit better from a biblical standpoint where the fathers of the faith came up with this language of one holy Catholic apostolic church. Lord, we thank you that we have an identity. Our identity is Christ. We are united to a long line of godly men and women throughout church history. What we're doing here at the church and starting a church and being part of this church is not unique. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. We understand that we are part of something much, much larger than ourselves. We thank you Lord for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that through the gospel we died with Christ, we were buried with him, we were raised with him. We were baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit. Even our baptism does not really identify us, it's really the gospel. Baptism is a sign of that wonderful inward spiritual reality. And we love the sacrament of baptism as we do the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, but These are sacraments. They are not means of salvation. Christ is our only means of salvation. So Lord, help us to love this one holy Catholic apostolic church. Help us to love it because you love the church, because the church is your bride. Encourage our hearts in these things, we pray. In the blessed name of Christ, our Savior, amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.